and please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, teach us this morning to guard the doorway of our hearts. Teach us this morning to guard the doorway of our mouths. For your name's sake. Amen. All right, I'm going to start out this morning with one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of Holy Scripture. Great way to start a sermon. The story is about the vow of Jephthah. Now, Jephthah uh, was a judge and a gifted military leader, though uh, he wasn't particularly known to be a virtuous man. And when he was called upon in Judges 11 to rescue Israel from the Ammonites, he made a very rash vow indeed. He swore to God that if God would grant him victory in battle, he would offer as a sacrifice whatever came out of his tent when he returned home. And from the Hebrew word that he uses, we get a sense that he assumed that it was going to be some kind of animal that would wander out, okay? But when Jephthah returned home victorious, Judges 11.34 records, Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Verse 35 continues, And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is the very picture of being hasty in speech before the Almighty. Now, to be clear, human sacrifice was strictly forbidden in Israel. It was considered a thoroughly pagan practice and was denounced several times, even in the law of Moses. Later on in Israel's history, the prophet Jeremiah goes so far as to say that to offer your children as a sacrifice is so monstrous, it's something that didn't even enter God's mind to consider commanding. So clearly, Jephthah should have reneged, right? I mean, to add one egregious evil to another doesn't make a right. Nevertheless, the story of Jephthah's vow stands as is and has become a standing rebuke against making hasty vows to the Lord. And this is relevant for our text today. I'd be grateful if you grab a pew Bible and turn immediately with me to Ecclesiastes 5. It's on page 555 in your pew Bible. And uh, we're in the midst of our summer sermon series on Ecclesiastes, this fascinating example of Hebrew wisdom literature. And today's passage starts off with some profound insights about the relationship between our speech and our worship. Now, most of Ecclesiastes, as we have seen, deals with life under the sun. In other words, with human interaction apart from God, right? But here in this passage, it's sort of a unique setting um, for Ecclesiastes because um, Solomon clearly has the temple in view. <coughs> and what we learn is this. When it comes to approaching Almighty God, it is better to trust in the sacrifice of Calvary 
than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, what is the sacrifice of fools, this mysterious phrase? Well, it is the utterance of hasty speech in the presence of the Almighty. When instead of reverencing God as God, we seek to control God with our words. Okay? Verse 2 goes on to say, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And this is backed up um, by a rather profound, though, though not immediately obvious, rationale. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Now, what is Solomon getting at here? In essence, he's saying that God is transcendent. His power and perspective are limitless, whereas we're bound to the earth, bound to our own creatureliness, and therefore we're limited. The God of Israel is not some household deity made by human hands and subject to us. He exists in another plane altogether. Therefore, we cannot hope to successfully control, cajole, or manipulate God with our words. Amen? And to bear these things in mind when we come before God's presence is not simply like humble or like the pious thing to do. It's actually accurate and sane. Be not rash with your mouth, says Solomon, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, interestingly, this is essentially the same rationale that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount when he comments on this command. And he takes it even further. He says, do not take an oath at all. Remember when he says this? Matthew chapter 5. Neither by heaven, for that's God's throne, or by the earth, for that's his footstool. In other words, God controls these things that you're vowing by, not you. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot change one hair, white or black. Now imagine how presumptuous we look nowadays when we try to alter much more than our mere hair color. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now what a convicting passage this is to fallen human beings like us. We who are so quick to speak, so slow to listen in the presence of God, so prone to utter rash vows, so predisposed to injure our brothers and sisters with the things that we say. I've certainly found this to be the case in my own life. Growing up, I, um, I used to be like sort of the class clown, and so much so that it was kind of a part of my, my identity, right, that I clung on to. I remember the first time that I was ever at, asked to lead a Bible study during college, I just had no control over my tongue. And just throughout the Bible study, I always make little sarcastic comments or little jabs at people to try to be funny. And I would hurt people's feelings. And I'm, I remember feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit afterwards and being like, what's wrong with me? Because I have absolutely no control over my tongue. Even when I'm trying to not do this, I'm taking like, two steps forward, okay, I'm making some progress, and then take three steps back, right? 
So, I, you know, I eventually got to the point where I said to the Lord, all right, Lord, there's no half measures with this. I just want to offer you my whole speech. And if you never want me to be funny again, I'm just going to give that to you. If you never want me to be funny again. So uh, some of you have seen me do this before, but pretend my iPhone is something I'm trying to offer to the Lord, okay? And I'm trying to set this on the altar, and I, and I, and I say to the Lord, all right, Lord, I'm going to give you my speech. I've never trusted you with this, but I'm going to set this on the altar, and I'm just going just gonna to leave it there. And the Lord's like, take your hand away. <laughs> what? what I just, I'm just adjusting it, Lord. What are you talking about, right? No, so then I, I, we learn, we, we trust the Lord. We take, we take our hands away. And, and in this instance, I felt like what the Lord did is he took it up, he dusted it off, and he handed it back to me and said, actually, Taylor, I've made you with a sense of humor. Uh, and it's to kind of lighten the mood. It's to, it's to serve social settings. But now, rather than it controlling you, you're going to have self-control over it. And he gave it back to me. Now, sometimes we lay things down to the Lord, and we're like, Lord, I give you this relationship. I give you alcohol. I give you whatever. And I'm just going to take my hands away. And the Lord's like, thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> but, but often, right, what the Lord does, we lay something down. The Lord dusts it off, cleans it up, and gives it back to us because Jesus said anyone who tries to keep their lives will lose it. But anyone who's willing to lose their life for my sake will truly find it. You know God, our creator, he knows who you are more than you know who you are. Do you understand that? We're so obsessed with self-definition. It's God, your creator, your maker, who loves and knitted every fiber of your being, who truly knows you. He wants to speak a word over you. It says in the book of Revelation, he has a name for you written on a stone that no one has ever seen, and he longs to give that to you. Amen? But often we're not willing to pay the cost that comes with total trust. And so rather than offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, what we try to do instead is offer the sacrifice of fools. We try to manipulate God or trick ourselves with our own words. And in that place of vulnerability, when we're being asked to lay things down, our, our very flesh, our fallen nature, it, it just it screeches and squirms, doesn't it? Because we don't really want to trust these things to God's hands. But you're not alone, beloved. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus Christ, during his days on earth, had to experience the agony of unanswered prayer. Do you know that? When did Jesus experience unanswered prayer? Right, at Gethsemane, in his most vulnerable moment, in the hour that he was most tempted not to trust the Father's plan, he prayed, Abba, Daddy, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But how did he end his prayer? Yet not what I will, but your will be done. Jesus uttered this prayer actually several times, the text says. This was a time of vulnerability for Jesus in his human nature. A time when he needed his friends to keep vigil with him. But he was left all alone to face the coldness of the night and of unanswered prayer. 
and yet he relinquished himself. Indeed, according to St. Maximus, the confessor, this was the very moment when our human nature was fully divinized in Christ, fully taken up, because what began there in that lonely garden was the very opposite of the sacrifice of fools. It was a, it was a passionate self-offering of love and faith to God for you. As the Book of Common Prayer so beautifully puts it, he made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Hallelujah. All right, so we've already sort of dove into the theological deep end. I'm sorry. And, and, and we have two full chapters of Ecclesiastes to get through this morning, which is mostly about wealth and possessions and contentedness. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time, okay? First, I want to highlight a few of the things that Solomon has to teach us about money in chapters 5 and 6, we'll spend less time on this topic because it's a repeated theme in Ecclesiastes and uh, one that we've already discussed in this series. And then, second, I want to I circle back to these first few verses from chapter 5 about our speech because this section is really unique in this book. Uh, so I'm going to do um, the second thing firstly so that I can do the first thing foremostly. Got that? All right. I know that sounds like... Uh, like the title of a song from like Mary Poppins or something, but let's roll with it. Okay, so, uh, so first, let's zero in on what the text has to say about acquiring wealth. I want to give you a fly-by list, five Solomonic principles concerning money. Uh, these are based on the, works, uh, the work of an um, Old, Old Testament scholar, Daniel Estes, in his excellent handbook on the wisdom books and psalms. Now, to be clear, this is truly an Ecclesiastes-style list. Proverbs would have a few more positive things to say about wealth, but this is the text that we have today, and it's the Word of God. So let's go at it. Um, the first principle is, what we want is always more than what we have. All right? Let's repeat that. What we want is always more than what we have. Human beings always fool themselves into thinking, if I just had like a little bit more, then I'd be satisfied. If I just had the same income as so-and-so, if I just had the same house as so-and-so, then I would be content. But that's not the way that it works. That's what Solomon tells us. Looking back to our text, chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, it's vapor, it's mist. As the richest man around, Solomon can speak from intimate personal experience. And he, want us to, he wants us to know yet again, it's never enough. We think it will be, we'll think, we think that we'll get to that point eventually, but it never happens. Furthermore, um, his second principle, the more someone has, the more they need to have more. Solomon puts it this way in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? This, this picture of this person being like, well, at least I get to look at what I have. I mean, and this is true today, isn't it? Someone buys a bigger house and it means more maintenance, more taxes, more furnishings. It also increases the pressure to maintain a higher income in order to make your mortgage payments. And then maybe you don't have time anymore to clean the house or to mow the lawn. And so you hire that out too, right? That's, that's how it works. 
And this leads to point number three. The more wealth, the more worry. Or as P. Diddy would say, circa 1997, go ahead and date yourselves. Go ahead and date yourselves. More money, more problems. Exactly. <laughs> I, know, I knew you were thinking that already. All right. So Sol uh, Solomon would go on to uh, illustrate this point in a very like, psychologically interesting way. Because he points out in verse 12 that a blue-collar laborer, someone who works with their hands, sleeps more soundly at night than the rich man whose belly is full of rich foods and whose life is full of worries. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, says Solomon, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why? Because the more wealth, the more worry. All right, point number four, it's more like point 3B because it relates to worry, and it's simply this. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Verses 13 and 14 says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. You guys know, there's a freedom that comes with having nothing to lose. I remember one time uh, someone threatened to sue me for a defamation of character for telling the truth about an injustice they committed against someone else. And at the time, Carissa and I were like, go for it. We got nothing to lose. <laughs> someone with nothing to lose is a dangerous person, too. And, and this goes for the church as well. If we ever buy this building, we'll have new blesses, but we'll also have new stresses. Because suddenly, we'll have something to lose. Now, to be clear, saving can be a godly thing done for godly reasons. I mean, check the story of Joseph in Genesis. And it's a good thing to have something to leave to your children. But it's also true that the more you have, the more you have to lose. All right, number five is probably the most important and indeed the most characteristic of Ecclesiastes, namely that death comes to us all. We can't take anything with us. The rich have no advantage in this area. Verse 16 puts it bluntly. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Now, a year ago, I preached a sermon on Ecclesiastes 2, and I shared this cartoon from the far side. And I just, we just need to look at it again real quick. So we, we see this, this grieving widow uh, dressed in black with a veil, and meanwhile, all her earthly possessions are sort of floating out the window and up into the sky. And the caption reads, Ah, it's George. He's taken it all with him. Now, the absurdity of this scene really brings home the truth of Ecclesiastes in a hilarious way. Daniel Estes puts it this way. He says, for something to provide lasting advantage, it must be able to transcend death because death robs humans of all they have accumulated. So to summarize, five Solomonic principles concerning money, from Ecclesiastes at least. What we want is always more than what we have. The more someone has, the more they need to have more. The more wealth, the more worry. More money, more problems. The more you have, the more you have to lose. 
and death comes to us all. We can't take anything with us. And to that list, Estes adds a sixth point based on chapter six, namely that it's better to be content with what one has than to crave for what one does not have. Better to appreciate the given good than to lust after the expected good. This is the key to contentment, guys. Or as Solomon puts it in chapter 6, verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, so I told you that would be a flyby. But now I want to end by drawing us back to our initial theme in Ecclesiastes 5 about learning to guard our tongues in the presence of God. So just like take a stretch for a second, you know, high five your neighbor if you need to, you know, pat someone on the back. All right. All right. Solomon says that to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Why is this so difficult for us? Why is silence so difficult? in the presence of both God and man. Because we're used to justifying ourselves through our words. So instead of trusting the sacrifice of Jesus, we again and again offer the sacrifice of fools. I want to quote to you at length from the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. In particular, he talks about the importance of silence and letting God be our justifier. He says... One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We're so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we're in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done something wrong, or even something right that I think maybe you've misunderstood and discover that you know about it, I'll be very tempted to help you understand my action. Now, if this is true when Foster first wrote these words in 1978, before the days of the internet and social media, how much more so are these words true for us today? Foster goes on to say that one of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. There's a story of a medieval monk who was being unjustly accused of certain offenses. One day he looked out his window and saw a dog biting and tearing on a rug that had been hung out to dry. And as he watched, the Lord spoke to him saying, that is what's happening to your reputation. But if you will trust me, I will care for you, reputation and all. And Foster concludes, perhaps more than anything else, Silence brings us to believe that God can care for us, reputation and all. And more than anyone else in history, we see this kind of spirit in Jesus Christ, do we not? He was willing to be misunderstood, mistrusted, misrepresented, but he trusted the Father to care for him, reputation and all. Now, to be clear, the specific context of Ecclesiastes is not about reputation, but it is about manipulation. It's about making promises to God of the, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you variety. Verses 4 and 5 say, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
In other words, just as Jeremiah said to the kids, it's not about the promise, it's about the follow-through. This, of course, reminds us of our gospel reading from Matthew 21, verses 28 through 30. Jesus spoke to the chief priests and elders this parable. A father says to the first son, do this for me. The son says, nah, I'm not going to do that. But then later on, he does it. He says to the second son, do this for me. And that son says, okay, sure. And then later on, he doesn't do it, right? And uh, I think we know who Solomon would say has done the wiser thing here. And to the credit of the elders in Jerusalem, they answer likewise. They said, the first, he's the wiser son. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, friends, what about us? Do, do we make commitments to the Father without following through? Are we trying to pull a fast one on the God of heaven? Here's a few like diagnostic questions, okay? Do we sing songs exalting Jesus as Lord without any intention of obeying him? Do we talk about the Great Commission, but never participate? Do we offer sacrifices without repentance? If so, we may be offering what one commentator calls an insincere charade of worship. Is God Lord or not? And the missing ingredient, according to Solomon, according to John the Baptist, according to Jesus himself, is to have a proper fear of God. Ecclesiastes 5, 7 says, God is the one you must fear. Now, our problem is, we've become our own judges. It's, it's, it's the culture we live in, right? We don't like, we don't, we don't, we don't think like these biblical figures, do we? According to verse 1, Solomon thought we could be doing evil without even knowing it, right? He, he says to those who utter hasty vows that, they do not know that they're doing evil. And unlike our modern ethical theories that focused almost entirely on our intentions or consequences, Solomon does, didn't think that the ignorant man was thereby automatically acquitted. Likewise, his father David prayed, who can discern his own errors? And he prayed to God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Psalm 19 verse 12. The Apostle Paul said, I don't even judge myself. He said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean that I'm innocent. Right? How are we ever to learn to think this way until we learn to fear God as they did? Until we believe in our hearts that a plumb line exists and it exists outside of us. Outside of our judgments and intentions and that, that plumb line doesn't change. Because at the end of the day, your own standards of morality don't really matter. Only God's do. And it doesn't matter who you think you are, because only God knows. And he's not interested in your truth or my truth, because he only deals in the truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, 
But fools despise wisdom and discipline, despise the plumb line, set themselves up as judges. Only if we get this fixed in our mind will we begin to take custody of our tongue before God and man because we'll realize God's not on the dock, we are. And what's more, only if we get this right will we begin to throw ourselves on the mercies of the true judge because apart from this, we'll still be living in our own fantasy world of excuses and good intentions. Indeed, if we camp out in a courtroom of our own making, I tell you the tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before us. Because how can you receive the sacrifice of Calvary when you're still committed to the sacrifice of fools? These kinds of religious vows are not as common today, but they were incredibly common in ancient Israel. But as the warnings of Solomon attest, and as the story of Jephthah illustrates, they were also perilous. And yet on this side, on this side of Calvary, we should know even more clearly, should we not, that we do not need to try to manipulate God. We have no need to try to argue our case before the Almighty, for Jesus Christ has already made the appeal. Right? We have no need to justify ourselves with our own words, for Christ has justified us with his own blood. We have no need to manufacture our own flimsy promises but instead to trust in the solidity of his. Amen.